Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? Gobble, gobble. (laughs) Did I ever tell you how I'm related to somebody from the Mayflower? I... I knew that you had some kind of connection in the past. I do. I, I am an, a descendant of John Howland. He is the one who fell off the boat and almost drowned. <laughs> and now we understand why I was so concerned when we went rowing, because it's historically <laughs> part of the lineage. Well, at least he made it and you made it through rowing. So that was good. The spirit of my ancestors got me back on that boat. That's right. That's right. Well, yes. It is Thanksgiving in the United States this week, which means we've got a lightning round episode for you so you can have a little taste of the games while you're cooking or cleaning up after your dinner or maybe driving home. Gobble, gobble, turkey. What is it? Tryptophan? That yeah, makes I think so. you... Yeah, yeah. Sleepy. Food coma. <laughs> That's right. Lightning rounds happen because whenever we interview someone, we ask them similar questions to other guests, and it's always fun for us to hear the different answers. First up is author Stephen Lane. We spoke with Stephen earlier this year about his book, Long Run to Glory, which is about the history of the women's marathon and its Olympic debut. Take a listen to his lightning round. Lightning round! What is your first memory of the Olympics from when you were a kid? (laughs) <laughs> See, and we're, okay. we're the same age steven yeah. so this okay. is making this is going to make me feel better than when okay. we interview like the 16 year olds so my first indelible memory as i mentioned is is Joni benoit on the freeway all alone in los angeles but but if i go back further in time to 1976 i was five and <laughs> what I remember is like my two older brothers, like running into the living room. The Olympics are on. The Olympics are on. And, you know, I'm five years old. I'm just like toddling along behind them. I'm like, oh, the Olympics are on. And I had no idea if they were. But I was like, I was like oh, the Olympics, this must be great. And I don't know why I remember that. I, I think I vaguely remember. I think that what was on was Olympic basketball, but I don't know. But I just remember like the excitement around the Olympics are on being being a really big thing. How much microfiche and microfilm did you have to go through for the book? (laughs) Fortunately, not as much as probably in the past for a couple of reasons. You know, one, a lot of it is online now, which is maybe marginally better for your eyeballs uh, a little bit. Two, I, I, I had some real amazing help. The uh, Steve Vitonis, who is the sort of director of the USA Track and Field New England office, has uh, he's also a bit of a pack rat. Don't tell him I said that. But he uh, he has in his office, like one room of the office is all old running magazines. So he's like, yeah, come on down and go look through. So so I spent hours going back forever, like 
So I got to actually see hard copies of the running magazines, which was great. And then I had, I had real great help from the World Athletics Archives and the IOC Archives, and then a couple of professors who have written more uh, academic works on various aspects of the Olympic movement also were sharing their, they were willing to share their stuff with me. So I actually, I got to do more PDFs and more hard copies than microfiche, thank God. Well, <laughs> what I... Oh, I was, I was gonna say, gonna I remember say, about the spinning the oh, machine, and you oh, could never yeah. find the right page. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, it just that that struck me during when you were writing about the trials in Olympia and the level of detail in that whole section and, uh-huh. and what the city went through and the organizers. So I just love, um, and his name is escaping me now. The organizer of the New York City Marathon and the <laughs> organizer of yeah. the trials were just like we're making this happen. Yeah, and yeah. they just, they pulled out all the stops in Olympia to make that trials happen. It was amazing. It's is I, I'm glad you like that. And, and yeah, the Olympia newspaper was a wonderful resource. And I just like, I wanted to, you know, two things. I think, first of all, that is still regarded as the best women's Olympic trials ever, just in terms of community support and involvement and, and sort of as a template for what could happen. And so I wanted to bring that out. And then I also wanted to highlight kind of the difference in the grassroots community support for that versus like the the Olympics and the opening ceremonies for the Olympics and how like just both are amazing in their own way, but the the level of spectacle that went into the 84 Olympics uh, is, it was groundbreaking for sure and great in its own right. But I just love the community effort that made the Olympia Olympic trials such, such a tremendous event. And so Laurel James, who organized the Olympic trials, the bid for the Olympic trials for Olympia, she is amazing. You should get her on your show sometime. (laughs) I think she, who knows if you could actually figure this out, but she probably had the first women's owned running specialty store in the, in the country and it expanded. And and she is just like, just an absolute character of of a woman. And and yeah, like Fred Lebo, they had this kind of, well, we're going to improvise our way through this. We're going to make it happen somehow. Like that belief in yourself is pretty cool. I, like, I don't exactly have that. I don't say, yeah, well, you know, million dollar budget, no problem. I don't know where it's coming from. <laughs> no problem. We'll make it happen. Uh, it's really cool. And so I, I love the, I, I, yeah, that's a race I wish I could have been at, the, uh, the Olympia trials. Okay, so as a track coach, what was your favorite training exercise with the kids? Ooh, man, that's good. You know what I liked, and and this is weird, I liked having the team in the weight room, especially the distance runners, partly because all distance runners are kind of, they're awkward in high school, they're all skinny, and, and, you know, the weight room is where the football guys go and all this stuff. And so getting both the boys and girls in there and helping them get stronger, not only because the science is pretty clear, right? It, it makes you faster. But I think for high school kids, it, it's such a confidence booster, right? To, it's weird, but I don't know if you remember high school, but you know, having a mastery of this room that you wouldn't have otherwise, I think is really cool. And, and watching, like, you know, we spend a lot of time teaching people how to do the lifts, but then also then being able to say to like juniors and seniors, okay, you are going to teach the freshmen how to do these lifts. And I think watching kids have that mastery, I think is really, really fun. 
And then also having, just having this room and you're all in there and suddenly it's half an hour after practice and people are still sitting around stretching and just kind of talking, I think is, I don't know, it, it, it just always had a really nice feel to me. So, so that's not exactly an exercise, but a place and a set of stuff that we did that, that I think, you know, again, is really good for them as runners, but also just good in terms of development and feeling strong and confident in who you are. I just walked out of the weight room feeling pretty good about, about what we were doing. So I miss that. If you could be an Olympian in any sport, <laughs> not track, not oh, marathon, yeah. what would it be? Oh, wow. No okay. talent required. Um, okay. Fin- well, yeah, that's, there's that. All right. So financial considerations aside, right. You know, assuming like, <laughs> um, I, in, in Atlanta, I went to the Atlanta games with a friend of mine and I kind of on a lark, I, we went to watch the archery competition and it was so cool. <laughs> and partly like I have, I have like zero fine motor skill ability. Like there's a reason I'm a runner, right? I, but just, just watching how controlled they are and, and just so sort of at one with their weapon, I guess. I don't, it's not exactly weapon, just like, you know, foom, whack, foom, whack, foom, whack, like bullseye after bullseye. It was fascinating because it, it's something I'll never, ever be able to do. And so maybe something like that would be what I would choose. Okay. And last, do you have a favorite Olympic souvenir? A favorite Olympic souvenir? How about an Olympic trial souvenir? Is that okay? Perfect. Right. Really stupid, but the first vacation my wife and I went on before we were married, like we'd only been dating like a little bit, but we're both like running nerds. And, and I think we've been dating for like, gosh, a month when I asked her, I said, well, would you want to go to the Olympic trials with me? <laughs> and like we live in Boston, like the trials are in, in Eugene, Oregon. So, you know, this was kind of a big deal. And we, it's really stupid, but I think Tyson Chicken was one of the sponsors and, and they made these little Tyson chicken, like chickens doing different Olympic like track events. So there's like a chicken hurdling and a chicken throwing the javelin, really stupid. But I came back with about a dozen of these pins and, and partly because obviously there's some great sentimentality to, to that trip with my now wife and partly it just like chickens doing Olympic events. What, what else could you ask for? <laughs> So, what could yeah. go wrong? <laughs> I know. I know. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Oh. Thank you so much, Stephen. You can find his book on our bookshop.org site. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. We do get a commission on any purchases made through that link, whether it's on one of our book lists or not. Those commissions are vital for keeping our flame alive. So if you're in the market for books, please do check that out. And his book is really good. His book is really good. And that's also perfect for Small Business Saturday because this supports small bookstores. Exactly. So you can do two for one just shopping through that link. You know who else you can support on Small Business Saturday? Or Cyber Monday, Black Friday, Giving Tuesday. Any of those things is our Kickstarter program. So we've got a Kickstarter campaign running through December 9th. We need some help with it. These are the funds that are going to pay for the 34 daily episodes from Paris. So normally 
We do four shows a month and all the expenses for that is spread out over the year. Patreon has been incredibly helpful with those funds, but now we're sort of cramming an entire year's worth of episode costs in these eight weeks of next summer. So we need a little financial support for that. Exactly. Exactly. So we do have Kickstarter links on our homepage. That's flamealivepod.com. Please do support the show. I can't really express how much we could use the support because we're in danger of our flame going out and it would be sad to have to end the show. But sports production is really expensive and we do need your help in getting there. The cool thing about the Kickstarter is, one, we have some really fun incentives. We have the pins for Paris. We've got the viewing guide. We have one mascot left. Your dog or cat could, or ferret or whatever you would choose could be our mascot. But it also gives us a chance to know what you want to hear. So if there's directions you want us to go with those Paris shows, telling us and commenting on the Kickstarter and donating to that is a great way to be a part of the production. It's going through December 9th. All right. When we ask guests to do a lightning round, they get nervous about it. I am surprised how many people get nervous about this. I think they're always afraid we're going to ask them trivia questions or like what, you know, this or that, that are awful. Mm. But our <laughs> questions are very, we're very gentle. Maybe we should change the name from lightning well, to just like gentle questions we want to know. <laughs> Well, and we, we say lightning because it's supposed to be somewhat fast, but it's never fast. Never fast. And we have to say that, too, when our guests are preparing for this segment. But our final lightning round today is indicative of that not-so-lightning-ness aspect of the lightning round. So we're talking with Paul Campis. Paul is the general manager of Polytan Asia Pacific. And Polytan has done the hockey turf for eight Olympics, including Paris 2024. Take a listen. Lightning round. What is your first memory of the Olympics from when you were a kid? Yeah, my first memory is the Moscow 1980 Olympic Games. Oh, my gosh. We keep talking about this. Moscow is a big black hole for us in our Olympics knowledge. We know boycott news of the wazoo, but we don't know about Moscow 1980. What do you remember from that? I was a four-year-old. And I can remember coming home from kindergarten and watching highlights on the TV of the Olympics and seeing that. And I didn't comprehend how big it was at the time because I was too young to, to really understand it. But I just remember sitting there and watching all these athletes running around in stadiums and swimming and all those kind of things. I didn't see any hockey because Australia participated in the 1980 Olympic Games, but the hockey teams actually boycotted on their own basis. But I, yeah, that's my first memory is, is seeing those Moscow Olympics. And then the next one, I can remember we had a, by the time LA came around, I can remember I was at primary school by that stage and we did a lot of stuff around the LA Olympics and watching that on TV and writing letters to athletes and things like that. And I can remember we had an Olympic mascot that was a koala in a green and gold tracksuit for the Australian team. And I just remember drawing pictures of the mascot at primary school as with my classmates and sticking those up all over the room with go Australia messages and things like that. Oh my gosh. What, well, this isn't even on the same question. What was it like for Sydney? It was unbelievable. So I went to the Sydney Olympics and the atmosphere was so amazing. I was, I was in my early twenties and it was, it was just 
the perfect opportunity as a country to present ourselves to the rest of the world. There were so many tourists that came here and it was described at the time as the greatest games ever. And it was, it's the kind of thing that as the host country is a tremendous sense of pride in that we could do that and that everybody enjoyed themselves so much. On top of that, the athletic performances were incredible from everyone, but like some of the Australian athletes that were there were just, yeah, they're the kind of memories that will stick you stick with me forever. What's Brisbane going to be like? Brisbane is going to be amazing, yeah. And I am really excited about it. I mean, back in 2000, I wasn't connected with Olympics apart from just being a fan. Now I'm connected to Olympics from helping to build venues and really closely, I suppose, in, aligned with the hockey side of it from that point of view. But I will hopefully be involved in Brisbane in some way from a work capacity as well. And that will enable me to be the super fan, the someone who watches the games and enjoys them for what they are and the chance to showcase our country to the rest of the world, but also be involved within one of the sports, hopefully, and trying to make sure that that's the best possible presentation of that sport for everyone worldwide. So again, not so lightning round, but when do you start working with Brisbane or do you, wait, I know you guys had the contact through like 2028, correct? Or do you, are you, or do you have it through 32 as well? No, no, to 28. So I'm currently working on three Olympic games. So obviously I'm heavily involved with this stuff around Paris because that's, that's here and present now. Some conversations going on in and around LA, particularly because now we've obviously got this transition to dry hockey and so some things around that. And already, and I guess it's probably more so because Brisbane's a home games, some conversations around the planning and things for that and the events and, and how the hockey could be structured and things already. So, yeah, my Brisbane 2032 journey from a work capacity has already started. Which is amazing because there are nine years to go. And I, I realize there's a lot of work involved, but it's just kind of amazing at how long these projects can be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're just over one year out from Paris, nine years to Brisbane. But if you don't start planning things now, then you can't present yourself in the best possible light. And every game wants to be the best presentation of, I suppose, its country that it can be. And leaving it till the last minute is not how you achieve that. What has been the favourite Olympics that you've worked? The most, I think the favourite is possibly London because of the wow factor that the change in the surface to blue, the fact that it gave hockey the opportunity to be really bold and say, we're this fantastic sport and look at us on our blue pitch with the pink surrounds. We want you to look at us instead of we're just a sport that's in the Olympic program and the people that love hockey will will watch it, but others won't. So from that point of view, that was really satisfying to see that. And that was hockey's chance to just really set a great tone. And I think from memory, it was the third most well-attended sport at the London Olympics. If you could be an Olympian in any sport besides hockey, what would it be? Any sport that would get me there. Oh, well, you don't have to be good in it. Choose choose one. <laughs> I don't have to be good at it. <laughs> I've always loved cycling. And one of my early memories of the Olympics, I can remember watching the Australian Team Pursuit team in the 1984 Olympic Games, four-man Team Pursuit, and I was just fascinated with the speed they could ride at, how close they were together, and how one would peel off and then go in behind the others. And it was just that 
that perfect, perfect sort of unification of the team and knowing and trusting each other that you're going to be in exactly the right position and work together to those kind of goals. I think I'd like to be a team, a team pursuit cyclist. When you're working in Olympics, do you get a chance to go and see other events? Or are yep. you? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. If you can, yeah, you try to. Mm-hmm. It can be difficult because it's if you're on site during the games, you're there well before the first matches, and you're there well after the last match. And if you do that every single day, it's it's pretty taxing. So that's why you need to have a couple of people there, and you need to get a break. And if you can get that break, then try and take that opportunity to go and see some other sports. And I was lucky to do that in the Rio Olympics and got around to see a, a range of other sports, which was good. That's the only Olympics really where I've had that opportunity. What did you end up seeing? What was the best thing you saw? I saw the whitewater rafting finals because that was, oh. I walked there from the hockey venue. It was just up the hill. Wow. That was really cool. I also went to the swimming one night and I saw the men's 100 meter final, which was won by an Australian. But the most exciting thing I remember from that night was there was a brilliant Brazilian swimmer in a, in a relay event. I can't remember his name, but when he was in the breaststroke leg, the whole crowd, every time he came up out of the water, they would cheer. And so it was like, way, and then it would be, and he would go underwater and they'd be like, way, and they, and the poor guy who was swimming, they kept getting faster and faster and he's going to the rhythm of the crowd. He burned out like he, <laughs> he couldn't sustain it. He, he took off like a train, but it was just a, a really cool moment where you could see as a spectator in seeing the home fans supporting their, their home athletes was really good. It reminded me what it was like when I was in Sydney. Okay. Rio, we've heard from other people how the organization was. How was it for you and hockey working with Rio? It was one of the most challenging projects I've ever done. And I suppose there's a lot of sports that say that as well. But field hockey is not a particularly common sport in Brazil. It's really popular next door in Argentina. But in Brazil, so there was no local knowledge of the sport. And in connection with that, there was no real local knowledge of what was going to be required to construct it. So the first time I went to the competition hockey venue, it was like a jungle. And there was people, I kid you not, I was walking through there and there was people that were going for their lunch break and they're walking out and they've got chainsaws slung over their arm and they were clearing, clearing vegetation. There was a river that ran beside it. There was a crocodile trap in there because they were having, having problems with crocodiles or alligators. I'm not even sure what it is that they have down there. But anyway, it's a large reptile with very snappy teeth. I was just like, whoa, what are we in for here? And yes, just some of the meetings and things about trying to explain to them what was required to to build a hockey venue was pretty challenging. There was a language barrier, clearly. I learnt some Portuguese, albeit pretty poorly, but I had to because if I didn't, I couldn't communicate with people and it was their games. It was my obligation. I took it upon myself. I was like, well, these people need to know how to build the pitches it's my job to be able to communicate to them, not the other way around. And so I put in some effort. As I said, it was bad, pretty bad Portuguese, but we got by. And the end outcome was, was really good. The hockey pitches there were really well regarded in terms of how well they played and the quality of construction. It's possibly one of those things that people might have went in with low expectations and so were pleasantly surprised. But I do feel like they did play really well and the, and the standard of the hockey there was good. So that was even though it was really challenging, when you look back on it and you reflect on it, you go, that's actually pretty satisfying. Do you have any sense on if 
that helped build a little bit of the sport in Brazil at all? I certainly felt like it was at the time. I don't know, ongoing, I don't know how much legacy there is and how much involvement there is with hockey within Brazil. It's not a country I get to see a lot of within international tournaments because I suppose the Olympic Games and the World Cups and those kind of tournaments, you go through a qualification phase to get there. And like I said, like, I mean, to, to qualify out of the Americas, you're going to have to get past Argentina, you're going to have to get past the USA, Canada, these kind of teams. So there's other countries that are ahead of them in world rankings that will make those tournaments before them. And it's a long way away. So I'm not going to see a lot of domestic hockey in Brazil. So I'm not sure how they're traveling. I'd like to think there's some some legacy that's come out of it. And there's kids playing hockey now that otherwise wouldn't have thought of it as a sport. And finally, sorry. <laughs> this, honestly, I'm sorry. This has really been one of my very tangential lightning rounds, but I, I do love hearing your stories. What is your favorite Olympic souvenir? That's it. I've never been asked that. I think I was presented with a an Olympic pin from the London organising committee to say thank you. And I had never really understood the whole Olympic pin thing until they gave it to me. And I looked at it and went, that's really cool. That looks really cool. And it's like a, a, a it's very much a, a specialist one. It's not like one of the, the standard souvenir type ones. It was a, a specific pin that was made for people that assisted in the delivering of the games. It's only a little thing and it sits in a drawer at home and it's, it's not like I pull it out and look at it or I wear it proudly around. But my kids look at it and every now and then they say, what was this for? And I say, that's because I helped deliver the hockey at the Olympics in London. They're like, oh, wow, yeah, that is cool. And I think it's that kind of thing that, I don't know, maybe when I'm old and I'm retired and I'll pull it out of a box and I'll look at it and it'll remind me of the Olympics in London and I'll go, yeah, that's, that was pretty special. Do your kids think it's cool that you work at the Olympics? Or they're like, well, it's dad. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those weird things, isn't it, that, Yes, I think they do. And they're talking about how they want to go to the Brisbane Olympics and they've and like, they realised that they'll be young adults by that stage. And they said, Dad, can we come and help you at the Brisbane Olympics? And I said, no, you can play at the Brisbane Olympics. Like, change your mindset. Why would you have to help me? Like, why wouldn't, wouldn't you rather go to the Olympics as an Olympian rather than just helping your dad? And they're like, oh, yeah, good point. How old are they? <laughs> they're 11, 13 and 15. You are in the thick of it, aren't you, Paul? There's a lot of sport in our house. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of food to fill tummies. <laughs> oh, yeah, so much food. <laughs> I was say, like, let's just grocery shop every day and fill up the entire refrigerator. Oh, my gosh. I cannot imagine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Paul, thank you so much. <laughs> We really appreciate it. This is this has been a lot of fun for us. Hopefully, it's been fun for you as well. Yeah, it has. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's great. Thank you so much, Paul. We'll have links to Polytan and the Polygrass Turf, and uh, you can follow Paul on LinkedIn because he's been going back and forth to places. And there have uh, been pictures. There have been pictures. Many clubs are putting in the new turf that he talked about. So it's it's really exciting to see the evolution of what's going on with the technology in hockey turf. All right. Before we wrap up the show, we want to say thank you to you for your continued support of the show. We appreciate you listening and having conversations with us, taking the time to review the show in your app, telling your friends about it, and supporting us financially. We are so grateful for this community and we wouldn't be here without you. Gobble, gobble.
We couldn't act like that either without you. <laughs> hey, you know, for our Kickstarter, we could have a turkey as a mascot. If somebody wants to pay we for could. a turkey. Right. You got some wild turkeys walking across your lawn. We do. In, I know. Out in New England, that's a big deal. And you can't hit them with your car. You get in trouble. So make them a mascot. There you go. There you go. Check out that Kickstarter. Take that last spot. That will do it for this week. If you could be an Olympian or Paralympian in any sport, no talent required, what would it be? You can connect with us on X and Instagram at FlameAlivePod. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that and find the links to our Kickstarter at flamealivepod.com. Next week, we are talking Paris 2024 hospitality with Will Whiston from On Location. Will breaks down all the different types of packages that are available, and he spells out some of the opportunities that they've got in several budget categories. So there might be something for you. It's not all fancy, fancy. If you're going to Paris next year, you will want to hear this episode. Again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.